Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Salam alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 184, Fighting for Pharaoh. Today, we are dealing with the opposite of peace. Seti I has led many campaigns and participated in great wars, but while the royal art shows the king triumphing single-handedly, the reality is more nuanced. Today, I would like to introduce the Egyptian army, as it existed in the late 18th and early 19th dynasties. Who were the soldiers that fought on behalf of Seti? Where did they come from? What equipment did they use? And when they marched onto the field of battle, how did they work together? This episode comes to you on behalf of Edgar from Ponce, Sugarwolf from Annerley, and Carl from Wellwyn Garden City. These fine folks made donations to the podcast in late 2022 and early 2023. Folks, you are too kind. My thanks for your support. May the army battalions and their patron deities protect you and yours. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. Come, let us march to the field of battle, following the pharaoh's fighters. The year was 1300 BCE, approximately. We are not concerned with an exact date in this episode, but the Egyptian government now operated under the leadership and control of Men Ma'at Ra, Seti I, the pharaoh of the two lands. Seti, in his mid-thirties, had spent the first few years of his reign in a flurry of activity. He had travelled great distances, leading military campaigns, and invested heavily in building projects in Egypt itself. Seti was an active and vigorous ruler. His kingdom was busy. Over the past few chapters, we have described some of Seti's wars. The king left abundant records at the temple of Karnak, describing his campaigns into foreign lands. Those records focus on the king, the victorious pharaoh, battling against his enemies. For the most part, these images do not show the army that Seti led. But of course, Seti did not win the battles himself. Whether he even fought in the melee or a chariot is totally unknown. No matter what the images say, the king's victories came from his troops. The foot soldiers, archers, charioteers, and the countless support crew of an ancient army. Today, I'd like to go beyond the art and meet some of those troops. To begin, let's set the scene a little bit. By 1300 BCE, we are 250 years, approximately, into the New Kingdom. One of the distinguishing features of the New Kingdom 
is the military aggressiveness of its rulers. Starting with kings like Armosa, Tutmos I, Tutmos III, and Amunhotep II, we find the kings of Egypt leading aggressive military campaigns. They go into foreign lands to the south, the west, the east, and the north. They fight great battles and bring back plunder, prisoners, and tribute from many foreign regions. The Egyptian kingship had always been militaristic, at least to some degree. Going back to the very start of the kingship, with figures like Namir, we find records of Egyptian rulers leading military expeditions. And victory in battle, destroying one's enemies, is a prominent part of the art and iconography of these rulers. So the Egyptian kingship was always militaristic in some sense. What makes the New Kingdom distinctive is the aggressiveness of the campaigns and the distance they were willing to go. During the Old and Middle Kingdoms, the rulers of Egypt had limited themselves to Nubia, Libya, and the Eastern Deserts. They had occasionally gone into Southern Canaan, but rarely much further. In the New Kingdom, the scope of these conquests starts to increase. The rulers go even further south into Cush, and further east into Syria and northern Mesopotamia. In short, the militarism was traditional, but the ambitions were much greater. As you can imagine, that kind of aggressiveness and long-distance campaigning had a distinctive effect on Egypt's armed forces. By 1300 BCE, the start of the 19th dynasty, we begin to find records of a sophisticated, well-organized military machine. From the age of Seti I and his successors, a variety of documents, art, and archaeological material reveals the lives and organization of the Egyptian army. We hear about the army companies and divisions, the individual soldiers, and the officers who led them. We learn about logistics, the business of supplying and provisioning the army, and we have a great deal of information about the fortresses, castles, and outposts which these men used. For the podcast, this is wonderful. I've talked about the Egyptian army occasionally in the past, but mostly in the context of campaigns and battles. With the 19th dynasty, though, we start to get a lot more evidence, and I can dive into every branch of the military in far greater detail. To give us a basic sense of the organization, there are four branches to the armed forces in New Kingdom Egypt. The first branch is the infantry, or the army itself. Then, there are the charioteers, the elite cavalry warriors who operate as a distinct group. There are also the garrison troops, who live in the great fortresses and man the outposts. Finally, there is the navy, the waterborne forces of ships and marines who patrol the Nile River, sail along the coast, and defend Egypt from any sea-based threats. These four branches, infantry, chariots, garrisons, and navy, make up the armed forces, quote-unquote, of the 19th dynasty pharaohs. Today, I would like to focus on the infantry, the foot soldiers that formed the vast majority of the troops, and who did most of the work in battle and in garrisons. Around 1300 BCE, we get a lot of information about these people, including their daily lives. So that's the basic context. We are 200 years into the New Kingdom, and Egypt has a well-organized and experienced military organization. 
What did that look like, and how did it operate? We'll start with some basics. The Egyptian word for army is mesha. This is a generic word, referring to a collection or group of soldiers. The term mesha is actually quite old. It goes all the way back to the age of the pyramids. Mesha has two meanings. On the one hand, it can refer to a group of soldiers, but it can also refer to a group of workers or labourers. So this word, mesha, is not 100% military. There seems to be an overlap between the civilian workforce and the normal soldiers. That may sound unimportant, but it does give us an insight to the Egyptian mindset and how they approached the organisation of the army. For much of their history, at least during the Old and Middle Kingdoms, the majority of the armed forces was a peasant levy. Whenever an army was needed, say for an expedition or a military campaign, the soldiers would be recruited or conscripted from the villages and farming communities. But at the end of those campaigns, they tended to return home. There were some exceptions to that rule. Soldiers who lived in the fortresses in the south or the north probably spent far longer on a particular job. But for the most part, the bulk of an army was a levy or mesha. And as far as the administrators or scribes were concerned, a mesha army and a mesha workforce were somewhat interchangeable. That's the situation for earlier periods. During the New Kingdom, though, we start to get another word used for the soldiers. This second word is menfat. Menfat is purely military. It does not appear in civilian contexts. And it seems to refer to infantry or foot soldiers exclusively. That's an interesting development. And for some scholars, the appearance of this word, menfat, referring specifically to soldiers, might indicate the appearance of a full-time professional group of troops. The argument goes that as the 18th dynasty and the new kingdom developed, the increasing aggressiveness of the Egyptian pharaohs started to make demands on the organisation of the army. Back in the old days, a king might require soldiers every two or three years. In that context, you could just call up the peasants, gather a body of troops, and head out. But in the 18th dynasty, the kings are far more active in a military sense. Rulers like Thutmose III or Seti I would go out regularly, almost every single year. In that context, it wasn't necessarily practical to use the peasant soldiers for every single campaign. At the very least, that kind of recruitment would have been disruptive to the farming communities and the overall economy. So as the campaigns multiplied, the empire developed, and the pharaohs went further and further, they may have found themselves relying on a professional corps of troops. Individuals who served full-time, who had experience and skills in the art of war, and who could stay away for extended periods of time, garrisoning outposts or controlling foreign territories. These demands and this system might explain the rise of the menfat, the professional infantry, the core of Egypt's army. To be clear, that is just one model for the development of the armed forces. You may notice it is slightly similar to the development of the Roman Imperial Army, as their legions began to go further afield and spend more time on campaign. It led to the creation of a professional full-time force. We can't assume the Egyptians followed the same trajectory. They had different societies, after all. 
but the process of building their empire in the south and the north may have made similar demands on their workforce and their economy. With that in mind, the development of the Egyptian army and its increasing time overseas may have stimulated the creation of their professional corps. So, there are two kinds of soldiers in the Egyptian armed forces. There are the Mesha, probably the peasant levies called up when needed. They had a lot of overlap with the normal civilian workforce. Then there were the Menfat, the full-time infantry or soldiers, who served at the heart of the Egyptian army, who participated in campaigns, and formed the soldier class of New Kingdom society. That is just a broad picture, but it gives us the foundation of the armed forces. With that overview under our belt, it is time to meet the troops themselves. After the break, we begin a deep dive into the Egyptian foot soldiers. The close quarters or melee troops, the archers or bowmen, and the auxiliaries. These three groups are recorded in texts, art, and archaeological material, and scholars can reconstruct their equipment, organization, individual roles, and how they worked together on a field of battle. After the break, we get up close with the fighters who served the pharaoh. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Now that we've got the big picture look at the army as a concept, what about the soldiers themselves? There are a couple of different words for soldiers in the Egyptian army. The most common one is Ankh en Mesha. This translates literally as living one of the Mesha or army. That might refer to the peasant levies I mentioned earlier, although it could be a generic phrase as well. We also have the Wau. The Wau seem to be the infantrymen, and these appear in the army, the navy, and other contexts. The Wau, or soul one, is probably your standard foot soldier. Alongside the living ones and the infantrymen, we also have the runners. The runners, or pecherer, 
seem to be light troops who might skirmish with the enemy. The word itself is often spelled with a man holding a javelin. It's possible that these Pecheria runners would run out ahead of the main battle force. Maybe they provided a screen or skirmishing force to pepper the enemy with javelins. They might have gone with the chariots, providing greater strength to the overall force. These Pecherer are an ambiguous group, but they seem to be a part of the overall battle plan. When the body of infantry marched onto the field, the runners would go ahead to skirmish. Then we have the archers. The archers, or Pedjet, seem to have been a prominent part of the Egyptian military force. They came from different regions throughout the Nile Valley, but the most famous ones come from the south. From an early age, the Egyptian government seems to have recruited men from Wawat and Kush, aka Nubia or Sudan. Apparently, these communities were exceptionally skilled as archers, and they appear in the Egyptian army from the very earliest periods. By the New Kingdom, the archers, both Egyptian and southern, were an essential part of the military machine. In the Amarna letters, for example, we find foreign rulers begging the pharaoh to send them a group of archers so that they can defend their territories or attack their enemies. The foreign kings rarely ask for infantry or chariots. Archers are always their first reference. Apparently, the Egyptian army was exceptionally strong in bowmen. This probably gives us an idea of their preferred method of battle. The infantry forces, the menfat, might have lined up in solid blocks. The runners, or pecherer, might have gone ahead to skirmish. And when it was time to attack, the archers, or pedjet, may have marched forward to unleash volleys of arrows. These designations, foot soldiers, or ankh and mesha, Runners, or Pecherer, and archers, Pejet, seem to be the main body of the Egyptian infantry. Of course, an Egyptian army in battle also took their charioteers, a great cavalry force that would sweep out to the sides and around the foe. But we'll talk about the chariots another time. They are a distinctive group, with their own identity and equipment. For now, we'll just stick to the foot soldiers. So those are some basic terms for infantry. These are words that we find in monumental or papyrus texts. What about the art? Egyptian soldiers aren't that common in royal monumental imagery, but they do show up occasionally, and we get a glimpse at the troops and their equipment. For example, the famous Luxor Temple has an extensive scene of the Opet festival under King Tutankhamun. As part of that religious celebration, we see lines of soldiers marching alongside the king's ship, They might be the royal bodyguard, or just divisions from the army, coming to celebrate the god and protect the festival. These troops appear with distinctive outfits. They wear a special kilt that is wrapped around their haunches, with a kind of triangular apron hanging down over the front. They all wear sort of wigs or headdresses, and they carry large shields. The shields are kind of stela-shaped. They have a square base and a rounded top. If you've seen models or pictures of Egyptian soldiers, this is probably the type of shield you're imagining. In one hand, they carry a spear, and in the other, they carry axes. So they seem to be equipped for medium distance and close quarters fighting. The spear would keep an enemy slightly further away, but once they closed, the bronze axes came out to hew at their foes. 
Notably, the foot soldiers don't carry swords. The sword, or kopesh, seems to be an elite weapon, at least during the early 19th dynasty. Primarily, we see it with the pharaohs, or even with the gods. There are exceptions to that, and of course, in reality, soldiers may have wielded swords on the battlefield. But when it comes to royal monumental art, 90% of the time, the troops have spears or axes. Swords are not that common. In terms of artifacts, we do have some lovely examples of swords and other weapons. The tomb of King Tutankhamun, for example, contained several kopesh swords. They were made of bronze, and they probably had leather or fabric wrapped around the handle. Those materials tend to decay over time, so we just have the metal sword itself. But they are beautiful pieces, and probably quite punishing. Another sword, from the time of Ramesses II, is in the Louvre Museum in Paris. This sword is surprisingly light, only 0.77 kgs, about 1.7 pounds. So the bronze workers must have had some skill to make sharp, deadly blades that were relatively light and easy to wield. We can talk about the weapons manufacturers another time, because archaeologists working on sites from the 19th dynasty have actually found the workshops where the bronze metal workers would create these blades. So yeah, the Kopesh sword might not be the most common weapon for the infantry, but we do have examples of them, and they seem quite effective. We also have axes. Archaeologists working at the site of Deir el-Bahri, the great temple of King Hatshepsut, found a collection of axes buried beneath the monument. The axes have wooden handles, but a heavy bronze head. The head itself is nothing too fancy, just a semicircular blade attached to the handle. Still, properly sharpened and kept in good maintenance, this would be a crushingly effective weapon. There were also larger axes, great two-handed weapons with heavier, longer blades and handles. These seem to have been more popular back in the Middle Kingdom, but they do exist, and we have physical examples of them in museums. So going into battle, the Egyptian foot soldier had a couple of different options. They might wield the shorter, one-handed axe, or a larger, two-handed one. In the right hands, these must have been fearsome. As I mentioned, the foot soldiers often carry axes along with spears. Spears are less common in the archaeology, because they're made of wood, and that tends to disintegrate or get recycled. The spear heads, though, are often made of bronze, and they have survived in large quantities. The Egyptians made spears with a variety of designs. Some of them were short, with kind of a leaf shape. Others were long and narrow, more of a plunging, thrusting type of point. The spearheads come in a variety of different shapes. It's not clear whether there was a standard form that they followed over different periods, or maybe different workshops had their own distinctive styles. Either way, the Egyptian foot soldiers probably wielded long, bronze-headed spears, Again, in the right hands, these would be powerful thrusting and defensive weapons, and they probably brought grief to many foes. So those are the foot soldiers, at least as far as we see in Luxor Temple from the time of Tutankhamun. There are other images from other kings, like Hatshepsut, but we don't have time to go into every single depiction. Suffice to say, the Egyptian foot soldiers tend to appear in similar styles, they carry their large, stela-shaped shields, they carry spears and axes. Beyond the foot soldiers, what about those skirmishers? The pecherer, or runners, that I mentioned earlier, do not show up very often in Egyptian art, 
there is one example where we might see them. A temple constructed by King Horemheb at a site called Jebel el Silsila shows a collection of troops. They are Egyptian soldiers, but they're not wearing the standard uniforms and equipment of the infantry. These soldiers are wearing short kilts high up on their thighs, and they don't carry the shields or spears or axes of their counterparts. Instead, they seem to be wielding throwing sticks or possibly swords. The men are clearly running, and as they run, they drag prisoners behind them. This might be an image of the Pecherer in the aftermath of a battle. Given their name, meaning runner, and their relatively light equipment, one of the skills of the Pecherer may have been chasing down a fleeing enemy. When an opponent broke and fled from the field of battle, the lightly armed Pecherer may have been in a good position to chase the foe down and kill them or take them prisoner. In this case, the image that Horemheb shows might be Pecherer bringing captives back in the aftermath of a fight. That is a speculative interpretation on my part. The hieroglyphs do not describe exactly what is happening, and the scene itself is damaged. But if it's accurate, this might be one of the rare images of the Pecherer in action. It's pretty cool. Finally, what about the archers? Images of bowmen are not super common in the Egyptian royal art. The best example comes from a temple named Medinet Habu. Medinet Habu is on the west bank of the Nile, at the modern city of Luxor, or Thebes. This temple belongs to Ramesses III, another one of the warrior pharaohs. And on the walls of his monument, Ramesses commissioned great scenes of battle. And in those images, we find many pictures of archers involved in the fight. Ramesses III lived more than a hundred years after Seti I, but the soldiers he led were probably not that different from the ones serving under Seti. Bearing in mind the slight gap in time, here is how Ramesses portrayed the archers. Under Ramesses III, the archers wear long robes. They are not wearing the short kilts that you find on the infantrymen. Instead, they seem to be well protected. They carry quivers of arrows on their back, held across the shoulder by a strap, and the bows themselves are held in one hand, with long arrows in the other. The archers stand in a line, as you'd expect, and they raise their bows horizontally, directly out in front of them. That might seem surprising. If you've ever seen a Hollywood movie that shows an ancient or medieval battle, you'll often find the bowmen lifting their weapons up to loose the arrows in a kind of arch over their enemy. Strictly speaking, that's not the most effective way to loosen arrow. Firing upwards, the arrow is fighting against gravity for some of its journey, so it loses momentum and striking power on the trip. Ideally, the archers would want to be firing horizontally, or with minimal drop in the arrow flight. That way, the force of the bowstring gives maximum velocity, and the arrow hits with as much power as possible. So, the Hollywood depiction of archers firing wildly into the air in great artillery barrages is probably not how the ancient Egyptians were doing it. And the bowmen of Ramesses III seem to fire horizontally, probably at a relatively close range. Again, we have the artistic images, but we also have a large supply of physical examples. Ancient Egyptian bows can be found in many museums, and they give a sense of the weapons. Egyptian archers wielded two kinds of bows. There was the simple, or self-bow, made from a single piece of wood, 
pulled tight with a string. The more effective weapon was the composite bow. The composite bow is made from two different types of material, like wood and animal horn. These are glued together to form a compound or composite. The composite bow is harder to draw, but it has a greater range and a more effective striking power. The actual range of these weapons is slightly unclear. A good composite bow might reach 150 meters or 160 yards to be effective, but I've also seen estimates with an upper range of 250 meters or 270 yards. That might not be their effective range, just their maximum range, but the composite bow seems to have had good power. I'm not an archery expert, and I know this is a sport with many dedicated followers, so hopefully my brief summary isn't too off the mark. The point is, Ramesses III shows the Egyptian archers wielding composite bows. They stand in ranks, and they're probably standing about 150 meters away from the enemy. That seems like a reasonable, effective range. They would get relatively close, all things considered, in order to have the maximum striking power. There's a lot of guesswork and many assumptions in that, but if the picture is accurate, then we can imagine the Egyptian archers standing reasonably close to the action. Perhaps they would try to find high ground in order to be more effective over the heads of the infantry. Or perhaps once the melee started, the archers themselves kind of fell back. We can only speculate on the evidence we have right now. But long story short, the Egyptian archers were an effective fighting force, wielding strong composite bows and wearing padded coats for protection. These kind of soldiers might have worked for Seti I. You may be wondering which of these groups, the infantry, the archers, or the runners, were considered the most prestigious. As far as the texts are concerned, the bowmen and the foot soldiers seem to be roughly equal. High-ranking generals like Ramesses I or Horemheb before they became pharaoh make references to both units of the army. Ramesses and Horemheb both held the title Emira Mesha or Overseer of the Army, aka General, but they also had the title Heri Pejet or Overseer of the Archers. Broadly speaking, the two divisions, foot soldiers and bowmen, seem to be roughly equal in the administrative hierarchy. There are nuances to that, of course, and both groups of infantry were considered inferior to the chariots, but that's a story for another day. The point is, the bowmen and the foot soldiers were roughly equal in terms of prestige. That makes sense. Both of these groups can be equally effective on the battlefield, and you need both of them to control and defend strategic locations. Foot soldiers without archer support are dangerously vulnerable if the enemy has brought long-range weapons. By the same token, archers can be devastatingly effective, but they're not so useful in the melee, and they need protection. So the two branches probably worked side by side in many situations, and as far as we can tell from the titles of great generals, they seem to have roughly equal status. That being said, there is some evidence that the Egyptian archers had a greater reputation among foreign rulers. In the Amarna letters, that archive that documents diplomacy from the 18th dynasty, many foreign rulers in Canaan and Syria send messages to the Egyptian pharaoh. And in some of these letters, they specifically request that the pharaoh send archers. That might be a nuance of translation, perhaps the word was actually more generic, but it just comes across as archers. 
but it does seem like the foreign rulers have a greater need for Egyptian bowmen than they do for infantry. We may have lost something of the wider context there, but maybe bowmen of the Nile Valley had a special reputation. When foreign rulers were looking to defend their cities and territories, perhaps these troops were highly prized. Speaking of the Nile Valley, where do the Egyptian soldiers actually come from? The New Kingdom army was remarkably diverse. Logically, most troops came from small villages and farming communities, and you could find this throughout the two lands and many of the imperial territories. In the artistic representations, though, we do get a variety of troops who seem to come from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds. The most prominent are southerners and westerners. In some of the art, like the opet scenes of King Tutankhamun, we find soldiers who apparently come from Nubia and also Libya. The groups have distinctive appearances and costumes. The Egyptian artists have stereotyped them according to their background. But we do have a sense that troops from modern-day Sudan and modern-day Libya were recruited by the pharaohs as part of their armed forces. You'll occasionally find these groups described as mercenaries. But that term is not strictly appropriate. For one thing, most of our evidence here comes from art, but art is not necessarily reality. Egyptian sculptors and painters liked to stereotype different subjects according to cultural or ethnic backgrounds. So when we see a group of Nubians, quote-unquote, or Libyans as a distinct group, that doesn't mean that reflects the true reality. The soldiers from foreign lands might have served in clearly defined separate battalions, but at the same time, they might have been spread among the ordinary troops. The point is, just because the Egyptian artists show them as separate clusters, doesn't mean there are mercenary companies joining the Egyptian army. That being said, the concept of mercenaries, soldiers fighting for a political organisation outside of their home territory or group, is probably quite an old one. But in New Kingdom Egypt, we do not have the kind of records that we would want to identify specific troops as mercenaries. What I mean is, we don't know if these Libyans or Nubians are receiving special payment or reward from the pharaohs. They might be serving under the same conditions as your average Egyptian foot soldier. They may have been recruited, or coerced, by royal administrators, and they probably receive payment in the form of food, supplies, and maybe land. But to really define them as mercenaries, we would want some kind of special reference to payment that goes above and beyond what an average army battalion receives. In the absence of that evidence, it's really hard to determine if these men are fighting as mercenaries, quote-unquote, or if they're simply a part of the larger Egyptian army, with a distinct appearance. So those are the basics of the Egyptian soldiers as individuals. You have your Ankh and Mesha, or Wa'u, the infantrymen. You have your runners, or Pecherer, and you have your archers, or Pejet. These soldiers, with their different sets of equipment, would march onto the battlefield. Logically, they operated in groups, distinct units who fought alongside one another, and could act individually or as part of a larger army. That begs the question, how was an Egyptian army organised? What were their divisions and their basic battlefield system? This part is a little bit murky. We have a lot of terms referring to different companies or groups of soldiers, 
but the Egyptian records do not talk about the size of these units or how they all fit into one another. Scholars can only speculate on the exact organisation of the regiments and battalions, but here is the basic information that we have. In the reign of Seti I, the king erected a stela at a site called Bet Xian. We discussed this record in episode 180, but what's interesting about that stela is that Seti mentions three divisions of his army. These divisions, called Mesha or armies, seem to be distinct groups. They have their own names and their own identities. For example, Seti refers to the army or Mesha of Amun, called rich in bows. He also mentions the army of Ra, abounding in valor, and the army of Seth, strong of bows. These three armies, three Mesha, seem to be the main divisions of Seti's armed forces. We do not know how large these divisions were. Different scholars give different accounts, some of them going conservative, maybe one or two thousand soldiers per army. Others are a bit more generous, going as high as 5,000 for individual companies. We really don't know for sure, so depending on which book or scholar you're reading, you might find wildly different estimates for the size of an Egyptian army. Personally, I tend to take a slightly more conservative approach. Bearing in mind the limits of Bronze Age communication, transport, and organization, I tend to think that an army, an individual group, might be one or two thousand soldiers, but the higher numbers seem a little bit large. That's just my personal view, I could easily be wrong, but it's important to bear in mind, we don't know how large these military forces were. Was Seti marching into Canaan with 5,000 troops or 50,000? The answer is really unclear. One thing we can say is that the army itself was divided into small units. These units, or companies, were called Tsar. The Tsar is another one of those very old terms that is used for army organization and also for labor. The Tsar, or company, appear during the Old Kingdom, where they work in pyramid temples and construction sites. The Tsar, as a group, seems to number approximately 200 or 250 men. They were led by officers called the Standard Bearer, who seem to have been responsible for the emblem or sigil of the individual company. We will meet a standard bearer from the reign of Seti I later in the episode. Suffice to say, the unit of 200 to 250 men is the fundamental group for the Egyptian armed forces. The Tsar were the primary unit. We have introduced the types of infantry, the foot soldiers, the archers, and the runners. We have seen the equipment and weaponry they might have used, and we've discussed some aspects of their background and their organization. Putting all of that together, perhaps we can imagine the army of King Seti I as it may have appeared on the battlefield around 1300 BCE. As they marched onto the field, the army divisions, named for various gods and regions, may have appeared as solid blocks of massed troops. You had your close combat troops, the Mesha, or Menfat, and then you had the archers, the Pejet, and around this group, or just ahead, you had the Pecherer, the runners or skirmishers. The army was accompanied by charioteers, whom we'll discuss another time, 
and they may have swept out to either side or gone on ahead to harass the enemy forces and try to compel a rout. But assuming the infantry were required, the battalions may have marched onto the field in close ranks. The foot soldiers were armed with heavy wooden shields, and they carried spears for mid-range fighting and bronze-headed axes for the close quarters. There's very little evidence for swords among the infantry troops. Logically, the kopesh or scimitar may have required a great deal of space to wield effectively. By comparison, the spear and axe are more effective in a tighter, narrow space. So we can probably imagine the troops marching forward in close ranks, shields held against the body or out in front, with their spears and axes ready to deal damage. Each company of troops was preceded by a banner, a battle standard that was carried by an officer. We'll meet them another time, but these battle standards seem to have given the companies distinctive names like Rich in Valor or Great of Bows. Maybe we could imagine the troops shouting these names as they marched onto the field, raising a great war cry to intimidate their enemy. Then there came the archers. The archers may have stood on an area of raised ground, or perhaps gone ahead of the infantry at the opening of the battle. They seem to have worn long robes or coats, maybe padded to protect them from enemy arrows. They carried their composite and simple bows, with an effective range of roughly 150 metres. These archers, the pedjet, went forward to unleash volleys upon the foe. Apparently, these archers had a great reputation and were considered skillful and effective. Finally, you had the runners. The pecherer may have gone out to either side or ahead of the soldiers. They may have acted as a screening force of skirmishers, armed with javelins and sickle swords. The pecherer may have harassed the enemy as they approached the Egyptians. Or perhaps they hung back to protect the flanks. And then, when the enemy broke and ran, the pecherer, lightly armed and armoured, used their great speed to race ahead, cutting down fleeing warriors or capturing prisoners. The Egyptian army has not left the kind of detailed records we get from Persia, Macedonia or Rome, but we can imagine a skillful, fearsome force. By 1300 BCE, the Egyptians had created a professional, skilled group. These menfat, or infantry, seem to have been full-time soldiers, and kings like Seti I may have benefited from their experience in warfare. As the pharaohs led their armies out into the north, the east, the south, and the west, these great masses of infantry, archers, and runners formed the bulk of their fighting forces. And thanks to a scattering of artistic imagery and abundant archaeological records, we can reconstruct the ways that they fought and conquered together. We have met the soldiers and explored some of their organisation, equipment, and possible battle tactics. But fighting is only a tiny part of the soldier's life. Most of the time, they are far more concerned with supplies and daily business. Remarkably, the reign of Seti I has left some detailed records concerning the logistics side of the Egyptian armed forces. In episode 184b, I want to introduce a couple of these texts. We have letters from a standard bearer, a company commander or military officer, who deals with local business and economic concerns under his authority. We also have records from the royal palace and administrators, 
dealing with the supplies and food of the Egyptian soldiers. So if you are interested, that is episode 184b, releasing in a couple of days. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. I hope you have enjoyed this introduction to the Egyptian armed forces, and I look forward to sharing more stories of the army, the navy, and the chariots in future episodes. For now, our service comes to an end, and it is time to head out. Special thanks must go to the priests, my top-level supporters on Patreon. These fine folks are most generous, and they help me to afford the books on military equipment and tactics that otherwise would be out of my reach. My deepest thanks to Yola, Evan, Veronica, TJ, Linda, Andy and Chelsea, Ashley, Stephen, Terry, Martha, Kyla, Paul, Mykost, and Naden. Folks, you are most kind, and I am in your debt. Hopefully, your supplies are consistent, your equipment is well maintained, and every effort you pursue brings you great victory. And to everyone who supports me on Patreon or with donations, thank you most heartily. You are all very kind. That's all from me. I'll see you soon. In episode 184b, we will explore the backstory of an Egyptian army supply. See you soon. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.